like ethnic groups second and Americans first. Side by side, the British and French peoples have advanced to rescue not only Europe, but mankind from the foulest and most sorrow-soul-destroying As fascism boiled across Europe in the late 1930s, many Americans feared the tide would reach them and the country was vulnerable. The Great Depression had devastated the national economy. Violent labor strikes, ethnic tensions, and the threat of communism all churned American society. Hard times drew some Americans to a homegrown kind of fascism, especially groups that championed supposedly Christian Caucasian values. In 1939, a pro-Nazi rally drew 20,000 people to New York's Madison Square Garden. These United States also are the product of a particular racial group, the Aryan group. The men and women who conquered and pioneered this continent and built upon it the great... On the radio, meanwhile, one of the most popular personalities was a red-baiting, Jew-hating priest named Charles Coughlin. I'll ask you if you will rise in your places and pledge with me to restore America to the Americans. But Coughlin's following was nothing compared to the loyal fans of a more casual, everyday sort of prejudice on the radio. From the late 1920s until well into World War II, the most popular program on the air was a daily parody of black people. Andy, listen, the man is just about to say it. Yeah, let's everybody listen. Rinso, the new Rinso with Solium brings you the Amos and Andy Show. Six days a week, a pair of white actors played Amos and Andy, a pair of black bumpkins. Forty million people listened. It was a good job, too. I was a night watchman on a building the government was putting up. They fired me. I don't know why. Yeah, well, wasn't you a good night watchman? Certainly I was. Of course, there was a little something missing one morning, but didn't mount to much. Oh, uh, what was it that was missing, Andy? The steam shovel. Well, my name is Vernon Jarrett. I still can't figure out how the thieves done stole that thing. I was right on the job there as usual, sleeping less than ten feet away from the thing. Some of the stuff was genuinely funny. <laughs> but you had to resent because that's all they had us doing. You get what I mean? Because in the white media, we didn't exist except as comedians. We weren't born. We didn't get married. We didn't have children. We didn't get college degrees. And we didn't die. I know I didn't pre-post to her, neither. She's the big fat one with all the double chin. Oh, yeah, yeah. I remember seeing you with that one once. Yeah, yeah. She got a mouth of double chins, all right. Oh, yeah. I never knowed which was her chins and which was her lips. I never knowed where to kiss her. <laughs> You didn't, huh? No, I finally worked out a system, though. Uh, what was that, Annie? I'd hold a piece of candy up to her face, and whatever opened up for it, that's what I'd get. Historian James Horton says the popularity of Amos and Andy helped make radio the first truly mass medium, one that could reach a majority of the nation instantly and could change or reinforce public opinion. And so Amos and Andy, in some ways became a kind of confirmation in the minds of many whites that the segregation system was basically okay. That the racist thoughts you had were, were okay because they were based in reality.
radio executives took little note of African Americans. In the early days, many blacks couldn't afford radios or many of the products that radio advertised. Historian J. Fred McDonald. Blacks were not a part, or not a very prominent part, of American radio. Radio was a uh, Caucasian medium. It was very quickly by the government given over to private enterprise. The idea then became to make money. Even if a black broadcaster could draw listeners, that didn't always matter. Radio legend Hal Jackson got his start announcing baseball games for the Negro Leagues. One day he took an idea for a radio show to a station in Washington, D.C. And this general manager said to me, oh, would you wait here? And he went and got his whole staff. And he said, let me tell you of something. You know, this nigger is talking about going on this radio station. Is that a laugh? No nigger will ever go on this radio station. In the years leading up to World War II, segregation and racism were more common than not in America. The repressive system of laws and customs was called Jim Crow, after a 19th century minstrel character. In the North, Jim Crow was a custom. Blacks were simply unwelcome in many public places. In the South, Jim Crow was both custom and law. In many southern towns, showing disrespect to white folks was enough to get a black man or woman or child arrested. And you knew your place, you know what I'm saying? And your parents would take, now when you go to town, make sure they'll tell you exactly where to walk. Ann Pointer grew up on a farm near Tuskegee, Alabama. If you were meeting a couple coming down the street, they were white. You had to step down into the gutter, and Tuskegee wasn't always paved. It was red mud. And I don't care if it was storming, you had to step down in the gutter, you couldn't meet a man and his wife. They wouldn't move, and if you faced them up like that, they would, you'd go to jail. America was so segregated that even the blood supplies were separate. And in some states, the local courts kept two different Bibles, one to swear in whites, the other for blacks. They had a theater downtown called the Rose Theater, and I was a very small child. But we sat upstairs, and whites sat downstairs. But you had to be very quiet. If you did anything at all, they'd throw you out. My father told us, look, don't try to use the restroom or anything. Just go in here and sit down, because they were very glad to pitch you out. My name is Eunice Adair Tingling. The only thing I can remember is the black and white water uh, in the stores, the black fountain and the white fountain. And I couldn't, it wasn't called black at that time, it was called the colored fountain and the white. Sometimes we would slip and turn on the white water to see if it was different, a different color, whatever have you, and it never was. And of course our parents always got us out of there. My name is Dorothy uh, Washington. My mother did work downtown. Mrs. Snyder's Candy. All she could do was wash the pots and pans in Mrs. Snyder's Candy Factory. That's all blacks were allowed to do to black women. The white women were able to dip chocolate and swirl and all of that, but all she could do was wash pans. I am Thelma Davison Adair, a retired uh, university professor. This was a period, perhaps, of the greatest number of lynchings. Uh, everything was separate, total restrictions, and at every moment you could be humiliated just because of color. Amelia Robinson of Tuskegee remembers a time in the 1930s when she came upon a highway accident. Four white college students were horribly injured and no one had yet come along to help. And just a few, a couple of blocks from there, there was a black funeral home. And going up on this first, I immediately went to the black funeral home to tell them what had happened. Of course, by then, people were gathering. 
And um, I told him to send an ambulance to take these people to the hospital. The black funeral home sent the ambulance. I talked about 15 minutes with the funeral director. Then I drove back on down, and two of these people were still there waiting for a white ambulance because they didn't want a black ambulance to pick up white people. That, they'd rather die in those days. Jim Crow's tenacious grip on America troubled some members of the Roosevelt administration. They feared that restrictions on blacks and intolerance against ethnic groups could lead to domestic unrest, just when the escalating Nazi threat called for national unity. So FDR's Office of Education grasped the most powerful instrument of the day for shaping American opinion, the radio microphone. Today we bring you the story of one immigrant who did not come of his own free will, the Negro. Brought here as slaves for nearly 200 years, emancipated only 75 years ago, the Negroes were and are a challenge to democracy and an important part of our economic and social development. Americans All, Immigrants All aired in 1938 and 39 on CBS. It was written by the journalist and critic Gilbert Seldes. Two eminent black scholars acted as advisors to the series, Elaine Locke and W.E.B. Du Bois. Negro activists, as they were called then, hoped the government-sponsored show would portray African Americans as a sophisticated people ready to contribute to modern society. Some were disappointed by how much the program focused on familiar images of blacks. 